sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You've lost half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian. And hey, it's Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. The rumor innuendo about your favorite music, your favorite artist. Man, we lost another one last week. Loretta first, and now one of the, the founding fathers of rock and roll. We can call him that, the, right? We can say it. Our architect, for sure. I mean, you, it, you it, texted me last week when, when the news came out, and you just wrote the last one. Yeah. Yeah. He put out a record a few years ago that said, Last Man Standing, and it was it. <laughs> That's him. And it's amazing considering that if you put like him and little Richard together, like, well, let's just say Jerry Lee Lewis did a few more drugs than little Richard, but outlived him well, right? by a lot. He outlived everybody. And he's like, he outlived everyone. You bring up a great point. Maybe the most rock and roll bedtime stories ready artist in history, the most lore, the most sensation, the most over the top ridiculous behavior. But somehow up to this point, he's only been a side character in past episodes. Yeah. And, the other thing that's really interesting to Brian is that he was one of the first 10 people inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, he was early. Um, yeah, he was. Yeah. And so he's considered an architect with Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley Elvis, Carl Perkins, all those people. Like he, he's one of those guys. But if you go back and you look at the work, his entire work, there's like these two main songs that stick out that are really the songs that people know. And they're such... They're, they're like ironed into popular culture. It's are they, are like they both Switch. Otis Blackwell songs? One of them's the Otis Blackwell song. I don't know if they both are. Otis Blackwell has been a curious case. He's on my long list for episodes because he's such an interesting guy who wrote like the foundational rock and roll tunes. Like no one knows that like Elvis, Jerry Lee Lewis, like a whole bunch of those core 50s, early 60s rock songs were all written by the same black guy who... Yeah. It's basically just a footnote in rock and roll history. Fascinating, dude. But that's not what we're here to talk about. I, I do think you make a great point, right? He's got these two songs that are iconic, the people that are bigger than him at this point, but are the things that anchor him, as you say. And I, you know, you could say it's an oversight that we haven't spent a lot of time on this guy yet on this show, but it was somewhat intentional at first because there's another prominent rock history podcast called Disgraceland, and that podcast takes its name from the nickname given to jerry lee lewis's party ranch <laughs> so it's sort yeah. of it's sort of hard when another podcast is like like i'm just i only bring that up to say i felt like the content need was being served i think the first episode was about him running his car into the gates of graceland um, yeah. so there's a lot out there about jerry lee and a lot of it is hard to negotiate with like it's behavior that is not easy to defend or justify so it becomes trickier to discuss in this format yeah and there's lots of lore but what brian just mentioned about him driving up to the gates of graceland drunk with a gun <laughs> that whole thing that totally happened i love hearing jerry lee talk about it where he i've I seen an interview with him where he kind of told the story like he was kind of proud of it in a way where he was like you know i went up there and I drove my car up the gates, talked to somebody, and they called the law. And he kind of laughed about it. But I've also read an interview where he said that it really, really hurt his feelings. Yes, I heard this too. He, did, he didn't. He he was he couldn't believe that, that after, Elvis Elvis would do that. 
the El- no, the Elvis was like scared of him yeah. or that Elvis yeah. wanted to do that. Like it, it really, really bothered him. So complicated, it, complicated. It, well, so I, I think one of the best ways to show how complicated he is, is just to read the opening paragraph of the piece that Vulture published last week upon his death. I don't know if you saw this piece. No, here's the opening paragraph. Jerry Lee Lewis was known as the killer and it wasn't a casual title. A schoolmate called him that after he tried to strangle a teacher. He once shot his bass player in the chest. True. Just about all of his seven wives, including the one that was a child, said that he beat them. And there's a lingering suspicion that he murdered wife number five. He and was four. and four. He was the very model of a high functioning sociopath and somehow defied hard living, drugs, and alcohol abuse and serious health problems and made it well into his ninth decade. Yeah. And had part of his stomach like removed or some, like some insanity or whatever. But yeah, so you know, I grew up hearing those early songs and then but really most of my growing up I heard this country artist where he had right. kind of switched to country. Right. And I We're thought gonna talk was, about that. I, We're gonna talk about why that happens too, of course. And I, yeah, and I thought it was all sleepy or, or whatever. And then once there were part there I discovered something that was significant about him as an artist. I remember if it was ever brought up, someone would say, isn't that the redneck that married his first cousin? And I'm yeah, like, you want to hear what he did to his fourth and his fifth wife? <laughs> the one that's, that drowned in the pool? Or oh, the man. one that looked like she was beat up and overdosed on on his methadone? Yeah, likely? That's all Rolling rough. Stone Rolling Stone read a, wrote a piece about that wife and basically, I mean, pretty much accused him of murdering her. And that article did, yeah. which was a very... I mean, I mean, it might be true. I mean, but he was acquitted of doing anything. Well, so as you can see, you've pointed out, you made a great case. There is a lot to reckon with here, but at least for a second, before we get back to that stuff, let's set all that aside, acknowledging the shadow that it casts, and let's just discuss the musical contributions and the outsized presence this guy brings to everything else. Literally, like almost everything else we've ever talked about on this podcast lives in the shadow of Jerry Lee Lewis to some extent, right? And I think the, I like to think of the, of his entrance into even though this isn't really accurate i like to imagine that he's entering the stage of rock history with the million dollar quartet like that's when we get to see him all of a sudden behind the piano and then standing behind the piano as elvis takes over Uh, we talked briefly about this at the end of the carl perkins cadillac episode that was just from this past summer i think it's episode 96 if you want to check that out but the refresher is the million dollar quartet starts as a carl perkins session a year after blue suede shoes and Carl shows up for the session. Sam is working with this kid from Louisiana who is wild and unrefined, but undeniably hard not to be impressed by. And that is Jerry Lee Jerry Lewis. Lee Lewis. And so he tells Carl to use him. Sam Phillips says, use this kid in this recording session. And then later in the day, Elvis and Johnny Cash are convinced to stop by. Uh, picks are snapped. History is made. But let's talk about what sets Jerry apart at the time. I mean, he has, hey. he has a distinctive piano style. So let's talk about that first, and then we'll talk about the performance. You might refer to this uh, as irreverent, depending on what you put it next to. One of the origin stories that you brought up immediately as we started talking before the mics were on, uh, which I do love, one of my favorite origin stories about him, is this somewhat tall tale about getting kicked out of Christian school. You know this story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, there was like a, a hymn that he was going to sing and he made it talk, kind of like of a boogie woogie thing. Like he <laughs> exactly it, it. And it's, it kicked him out. So you know what song it is? It's My God is Real, which later Johnny Cash will record a version of. Huh. Uh, and I would, if you've heard the Johnny Cash version, I'd say it's probably in between the Jerry Lee Lewis version and the hymn. Um, but 
Jerry's version seems so sacrilegious to the school administration that he is asked to leave that school. Um, and if we can go academic for a moment, I do think it's worth talking about this style, this boogie woogie style as, as, yeah. a, as a subject. Okay. So it dates back to the seventies. Surprise, surprise. We have the black community to thank for it. Um, as we do pretty much everything in rock and roll, uh, to right. keep it simple, just understand that in its most general form, it's based around the way you play the piano with your left hand. It's a left hand thing. Um, it's basically 12 bar blues, but it's played in this certain way with your hands. And there's been a bunch of research in the last dozen years or so that tracks it back in terms of us origins to Texas, which is sort of interesting, but it mainstreams in the 1920s. It morphs a bit in the 40s into subgenres like jump blues, as a term you'll often hear. And then it becomes early rock and roll. So Little Richard, Louis Jordan, uh, John, J- Jerry Johnny, John, Johnny Johnson, Johnny who, Johnson is, yeah. who is Chuck Berry's piano player. Yeah. Now, by the way, fun fact, this does not have any bearing on what we're talking about directly, except it needs to be said at some point. Do you know that Lee, like in Jerry Lee Lewis, is just totally made up? No, I didn't know that do, was do you fake. Know, like Homer J. Simpson. Do you know why it's made up? His dad. I thought his dad was Jerry Lee Lewis. No, he junior. He threw. He threw in the Lee to separate himself from Dean Martin's oh, partner in comedy. Oh, yeah. Wow, lady. Yeah, <laughs> to, to separate him from that. Yeah. Uh, but okay, so Jerry Lee Lewis, not just the sound of the piano he becomes known for. If I like you pointed out, I don't think if he was just playing the piano that way, there's plenty of other people that could do that. Um what and, and can we can we talk about the lyrics and the songs yeah, and what yeah. they were about? But let's talk about, about the let's talk about the performance style first. His yeah. this is the New York Times obit. Okay, this I don't know if you read this one. His scorching performing style suited his material, which is what you're alluding to, right? The songs are crazy. Uh, Mr. Lewis discovered that audiences loved it when he kicked his piano bench aside and attacked right. the keyboard standing up. He'll tell a story that he did it the first time by accident, and then it got such a big reaction, it became part of an act. Uh, he was, quote, possessed by, quote, the devil's music, as he called it. He writhed and howled, raked the keyboard with his right foot, tossed his wavy blonde hair until it looked like a wig. Um, but... There's something that when you hear about this, that has to be accounted for because of the time period, right? You don't know this is happening when you hear it. You know it's happening when you see it. And so technology becomes a part of this story. It's July 28th, 1957, where Jerry plays a whole lot of shaking going on on the Steve Allen show. And he does that all the bit that you just said. With the piano bench and the foot on the keys. And now the whole country knows what's up, right? So up to this point. He's a star, yeah. Yeah, he's just a dude that plays the piano, and he's got some energy, and people are catching on. But this is when he catapults, and this exposure is what is the double-edged sword, right? It's like if he had just been playing around bars in America and making an honest living that way, I don't, I mean, he probably wouldn't have had the effect that he had, but it would have been different because it wouldn't have been magnified to a national platform. And Jerry Lee becomes fairly controversial quickly. He starts, rec- just to give you the timeline, he starts recording in 52. Million Dollar Quartet is 56. TV is summer of 57. And it's in 58 that a British British journalist cracks this first story about some real controversial behavior. And says, who are you? It's, that's what her question was. It's one of the most famous. Uh, it's one of the most famous stories about him. You you mentioned this already when you said, "Well, you want to talk about his fourth and fifth wife." Uh, but 
he marries a 13-year-old first cousin once removed, which I always hear it as married his cousin, which technically is true, but first cousin once removed, in case you don't know how to describe your own lineage, that is the child of your first cousin, which doesn't make it any better, but I'm just saying, like, it's, that's what that is. Uh, he's early 20s. This kid is 13. He says she's and 15, it, like two years make a difference? Yeah, he says 15, and it, and it gets out, and they... But, but they, the craziest uh, part about this is... It's they his, stay married. It's his, well, they stay married, but also it's his third marriage. <laughs> yes. The first one was short. The second one was like it, it, he was still married to his first wife. So the second one didn't count. This bigamy, right? Oh, my God. And but, then the third one is the cousin. Now, people act like cancel culture is new, but 1958, they canceled. They canceled him. Uh, they do yeah, not yeah. abide with a public performer doing such a thing. Yeah, he he had to cancel... He had to cancel those dates in Europe. Yeah, he's not on a tour. He's got to yeah. can the tour, like after three yeah. shows. And now, here, here's the thing. And, and I think I'm interested to talk to you about this. When yeah. I was talking about the idea of, like, how do we do a Jerry Lee Lewis episode conundrum with a friend over cocktails this weekend, a, a, a close confidant, it was suggested to me that this is where we should start. He, my friend said, you should set up the socially unacceptable behavior the public rejection, Jerry having to recalibrate his career during a period often called the wilderness years, and then you should focus on the story of what happens in Germany at the Star Club in 1964. Now, And that's where I want to go, and I'm so happy. Okay, so that's not ultimately where I landed on for, for the full thrust of this episode, but it's worth stopping here because, as my friend pointed out, it's an interesting mental exercise. It's become one of these things akin to our recent discussion on the show about Rick James dodging the draft, right? It's a sliding doors alternate universe moment uh, because rock history could have turned out very differently if he'd not married his cousin. Like, I I think there is an argument to be made. Here. Sure. You want to you want to follow me here? Yeah. Also, because he was selling a butt ton of records and Sam Phillips knew that he had a star. And if that hadn't happened, if he had done that European tour and came back, he would have had dates here in America, and he'd been playing big, big, like big seats instead of playing little tiny places, which is what happened to him. Well, here's here's the bigger thing: if he had done that in the time period that you're talking about, 1958 to 1964, he would have filled a void because Elvis was making those terrible movies, and it could have kept the British invasion from happening the way it did. Ooh, boy, that's a that's a big right cross across all those those I, it's, yanks. It's a mental exercise, right? Like I'm not saying it's true, but let's let's play with this idea. Let's assume that you see Jerry Lee's fall from grace as the nail in the coffin of the initial birth of rock and roll, right? Elvis is doing the movies. Jerry Lee's kicked out of the industry, basically. Um, and if if you say that that is what happened, then basically from 58 to 64, you have a big hole. It, rock and roll is going away. And I'm armchairing this argument, Murdoch. But yeah, I if, see. if you want to give it some fuel, let me give you the Billboard Hot 100, 1957. 1957, before this happens, Elvis is at the top. Okay? The year of 1960, 18 months after Jerry's fall from grace. Wow. Here are, the, here are the top five on the Hot 100. Are you ready? Yeah. Mark Denning, Johnny Preston, the Everly Brothers, Jim Reeves, and the number one song in the country, Theme from a Summer Place by Percy Faith. Jesus Christ. Wow, what happened? Radio died. This happened. This happened. Rock and roll died. And it wouldn't have had Jerry Lee come back. So you think that 
Colonel Tom Parker got him doing got Elvis doing those terrible movies, and then Jerry Lee by marrying his cousin, almost like murdered rock and roll and and British invasion kind of. It's an interesting. Back in. It's an interesting story. I mean, again, it, it's it's us looking at history. It's us drawing, putting some dots together. I'm sure there is somebody who can jump in our email at wearethestoryguys.com and totally debunk this. But I think it's an interesting mental exercise and a fun, like if you're a rock and roll nerd like us, it's a fun thing to discuss over a couple of beers, right? Because yeah. it, it, it could be a very different rock and roll environment we live in had he not done this weird thing that got him excommunicated. I'm just saying it. And and whenever you're ready for me to pontificate about this live record in 1964, <laughs> just let me know. You just um, you just want to play it, okay? So what happens to Jerry? You're pushing us here, which is exactly where we're ready to go. He goes to Europe because in Europe, all these club guys are <laughs> hiring guys to impersonate Jerry Lee Lewis. Basically, they're like this is American rock and roll, which is not a German accent. I'm sorry. Uh, and they find out that they can just get a discount on the real guy. So yeah. <laughs> they and and you mentioned this and I heard this and I didn't I didn't go back and document this I heard this on on something else um, that like his nightly rate went from ten grand to two fifty like two hundred and fifty dollars yeah. or something like yeah. something insane yeah. like I don't know if that's 10, right but he was making five figures a night yeah and so uh, what happens is he goes to Germany which the same club that births the Beatles right. And he creates this record that goes down in history as being basically the one of the greatest, if not the greatest, live record of all time. And if, if you want details on the Star Club recording at a really minute level and more about this period, a 1001 Record Club podcast does a, a decent dive on this. We'll put it in the show notes. They, they did an episode back 2018 or so. That's a, It's good supplemental listening if you really want to get into this part. Um, but let's just, to your point, Listen to this, and then you can pontificate on it. You ready? This is this is the kickoff of this record, High School Confidential, live at the Star Club, Hamburg, Germany, 1964. You better open up a honey, get your lover boy, me, that's a knockin'. You better listen to me, sugar roller, catch the red to high school, rockin'. Honey, get your bobbin' shoes, so that you can box the blows of you. Got everybody hoppin', everybody bobbin', bobbin' up a high school like a machine gun in your face Woo! it's it's amphetamines oh my god dude well yes literally and figuratively uh and the the band backing up's the tennessee three there's no there's, no no uh, it's it's the nashville teens the nashville teens you're right yeah, yeah. um which one of them they, is british i don't know yeah great drummer on this record yeah yeah uh, at one point you can hear him admonishing the band and there are times when he's in the middle eight out of the second chorus and they're just going do 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 and 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 they're not at all together until he goes up and down the piano with all the keys and they go right back into the verse and then they come in together he's going so fast they right it was a I think someone called it a murder scene, which I think oh, was yeah. a great way yeah. of putting it. This was out of print. You couldn't get you couldn't it. Couldn't get America. it in the states for years. Yeah, and I didn't hear it until the the nineties. So imagine if Jerry Lee doesn't 
marry his cousin. And this record happens, and this record is available anywhere. Can you imagine the conversation about this record that is criminally overlooked where people say, yeah, that's the first punk rock record that was ever made. Or someone says, that's the best live record, More, that's the better live record than Kiss Alive or Frampton Comes Alive or, or Cheap yeah. Trick at Budokan. Yeah. Like, it's the best live record ever yeah. and there's not a lot of people that say that because people don't know don't know it exists it. hardly right and i mean you 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 really did a good job of talking about that right and it's uh, like think about this in comparison to the early beatles records like beatles for sale right like that makes this i mean this makes that sound like pop music they're pop music yeah like garbage like like not rock and roll not dangerous not interesting and the guys the guys he sounds like he's speaking in tongues sometimes they, during dude, this record speaking of that the guys with the thousand one uh, uh records podcast point out that there's a whole part on this where he the crowd is chanting jerry jerry he just jerry. Comes, he comes out and chants with them for a while yeah he's like jerry jerry <laughs> yeah he does he chants with it uh it is he, an he amazing it. moment a, yeah. a, amazing moment and it, it it is a great encapsulation of what made him so um like like a train wreck like we couldn't look away from him right even though we knew that this was problematic we knew it was he he was hurting people i mean we literally called him the killer and not in a fun way like an old guy calls a five-year-old killer right like in a way that means we actually think you might have murdered some people yeah yeah, well, I mean, he definitely shot his bass player and you know, the, the stuff with the wives. Yeah, you know, he was acquitted. Yeah, but um, but he, okay. So this is the question: If I'm listening to this and I know nothing about Jerry Lee Lewis, my question is: So how does Jerry Lee Lewis beat this rock and roll blacklist, Beatlemania blackout thing that happens in 1964? Uh, and the, the what he does not do, to your point, because this record is out of print and you can't get it in the states for like two decades, he doesn't. Bring that to the States. He completely no. switches genres. Yeah, he, he takes that left turn at Nashville. Now, now don't, don't let him tell you it was his idea. That bit of brilliance belongs to another guy in this story named Alva Dave Moore, a, a guy who I appreciate because he got into radio and changed his name to uh, Eddie Kilroy, which is a much cooler radio name. Uh, also, like, into the rodeo mostly. Um, and then moves to Nashville, tries to make it as a musician himself, gets himself a job producing records for Mercury, and his big idea is he's going to convince Jerry Lee Lewis to come back and do country. Yeah, and he signed... Yeah, that's right, because he was on Mercury. And he, yeah. does, he does it, and it's like the first thing Eddie Kilroy ever does. And he goes down in history as being the guy who single-handedly saves Jerry Lee's career. And Jerry Lee ends up being a... I don't like the country work at all, and I'll just go ahead and say, I, I think it's all like just boring but he became really successful oh dude between 68 and 77 you want to take a guess at how many top 10 hit singles he had on the country chart uh 40 17 in the top 10 (laughs) in the top 10 i'm talking just top 10 and then i just went for it and then four number ones out of those 17 yeah it's a lot and so it's here as we're all talking about everything starting to click again in his professional life that i want to I want to stop for a main story today. One that, unlike all these other larger-than-life tales that we've been talking about, I did not know until I started digging around in this research. This episode is brought to you by CarMax. Car buying reimagined. 
If you're looking for your next car, you have to check out CarMax. They have tens of thousands of CarMax certified quality vehicles, and you can shop on your own terms, online, in-store, or any combination of the two. Plus, CarMax offers an unrivaled 30-day money-back guarantee, up to 1,500 miles, so you can make sure you found the right car and buy with confidence. To learn more, tap the banner or visit CarMax.com for details. Okay, so we've mentioned the changing landscape in rock and roll already. And the year before Jerry Lee turns country, there's a new player making a big impression on a lot of people at a little event called the Monterey Pop Festival. And this is a woman operating out of California at the time, but originally hailing from Texas. This is the third time Texas has come up in this story. Uh, Lots of Texas. So she's been fronting a psychedelic rock band from San Francisco that called themselves Big Brother and the Holding Company. That, of course, is Janis Joplin. I'm ready for wherever we're going. Do, do you know the story of how she gets recruited into Big Brother? Uh, not really. So no. she, she hitchhikes with this guy who is a promoter, and he just meets her, right? And then like later, he's working with Big Brother, and he's like, ah, this girl that I gave a ride to once, she'd be great. And they like go and find her. Um, she, they have to bring her out of Austin. Like She has gone to Austin and has been performing solo in Austin, and they bring her back to California. Now, there's so much to talk about with Janice. We don't really have time for this. Um, we've really not talked tons about Janice on the show before. Another one who just is like an overwhelming force in early rock and roll. But know that her star is rising in 67, 68, 69, right? Um, she will die at the end of 70, and Pearl will come out in 71, just to give you that timeline of what happens with her career, right? So, you know, I think if you know anything about Janice, you know probably uh, Cheap Thrills, which is the Big Brother record, and you probably know Pearl. Pearl's the record you probably think of if you just think of a Janice Joplin album cover. That doesn't come out until she's dead. Um, and she's been recording it when she dies. Now, what you need to know about this period of the late 60s with Janice is that she's starting to eclipse the band that has made her, right? So they recruit her. And people become fascinated with her. So slowly it morphs from being Big Brother and the Holding Company to Janis Joplin and Big Brother and the Holding Company. They just become her backup band. There's some tension around that. There are battles with drugs. She's a giant personality if you read anything about her. Um, but it is somewhere during this time that Janis Joplin meets Jerry Lee Lewis. Do you know the name John Byrne Cook? He no. was He was Joplin's only road manager. So she only had one, 67 until she dies in 70. In the show notes, there's this fairly recent interview with Cook when he tells stories about Janice, and specifically he tells a story about Janice and Jerry. Um, But basically, like, Janice sees Jerry Lewis perform at some point, and she's, I mean, I guess fairly interested in the music, but she's mostly interested in his bass player. She gets a little crush. And when I read this, it reminded me painfully of a girl that I knew in college who I had an on and off again, weird friendship slash relationship with, um, sort of a girlfriend, sort of not. And she would do really frustrating things for a guy who thought he was trying to date her would do really frustrating things. Like (laughs) I'd be like, Hey, what'd you do last night? And she'd be like, Oh yeah, I went to this frat party and I waited. I was watching a band and I waited until they were done. And then I tried to go home with the bass player. So basically, Janis Joplin is sort of like my college quasi-girlfriend. Uh, she's trying to go home with the bass player. And 
then, you know, like that doesn't happen or whatever. She just sees him and is fascinated by him. And then later she will go see Jerry Lee Lewis again, partly inspired by the fact that uh, she wants to see this bass player again. So that's what you read. This isn't a super, like, do you know this story at all? No. Okay. So this isn't one of the big Jerry Lee Lewis stories. I dug for this and, but it's enough around that I believe it. And what's really interesting is I had to dig pretty hard to get the middle part of the story. So, what I just told you is a story you're going to hear in brevity, which is like two paragraphs where they say Janis Joplin wanted, like, was interested in Jerry Lee Lewis's bass player, went to one show, then went to another show and went backstage trying to meet the bass player. And then we'll talk about what happens backstage. That's the, that's the story you're going to hear. But what I found with an archived interview from with her sister, Laura, who is a key part of the story and is in the story, Oh, I don't know anything about her sister. This is interesting. So she's six years younger than her. And this is, so she's on the way. This is 70. A lot of times, like, and the other things that I read, it was hard to place when this happened. But I was able to place with this interview with her sister that she gives to an Australian newspaper of all places, um, that this happened in 70, three months before she dies. So they, I mean, Janice is like at the height of her success. Though you could argue that really the height of her success is after she dies. But yeah, it is. Her, her height of her living success. And so she, like I said, came out of Texas. She came out of a small town in Texas called Port Arthur. Port Arthur, yeah. She went to her high school reunion. And that's where she was. Murdoch. That's where she what? was. The night before, the, that night that she goes to see Jerry Lee Lewis the second time. This yeah. gets completely erased from the story. She had been at her high school reunion. The reason she was in Texas, she goes to see him in Beaumont. She's back in Port Arthur. And if you read the story, it just says she went to see him in Beaumont, Texas. It doesn't explain why she was in Texas. She doesn't live in Texas. Oh my God. Have you ever, ever, you know, she brought it, you know, she brought a film crew with her, dude. Really? Yeah. And she's like, I'm going to this class reunion. So Janice, just imagine Janice, what she looks like. Goes to class reunion, and man, everybody there is square, and no one cares. Oh, so and listen, this is this is where we pick up exactly with her sister. So this is the interview okay. from Laura. I mean, it, yeah. it segues exactly into what you're saying. It's from the Sydney Morning Herald. Uh, it was a f- quote. It was a formal event, and it was an awkward fit. Recalls seventy yeah. two year old Laura. Um, and I forget the date on this interview. It wasn't terribly long ago. She accompanied Janice, six years her elder, to the reunion and wore a dialed-back version of her sister's fabulous freak-out garb. Um, And now Laura's talking again. Everyone else was a straight middle-class clothing and teased hair. There was a sense that they didn't know what to do about her, but in my mind and in Janice's, they should have made her attendance and her success one of the central points to celebrate. Yeah. Look what someone at our high school achieved. However, and this is Laura continuing to talk, the guy running things thought in terms of how many people had law degrees. It was only when the president of the class said, what about Janis Joplin, that everyone stood up and applauded. Even then, the recognition was miserly. At the reunion, Janis was symbolically gifted, so they're giving out symbolic gifts, right? Most whatever. They don't give her a tambourine or a microphone or a, you know a, anything to denote her success. They give her a tire, to represent, quote, that she'd come the furthest. Mm. I saw the clip of her after she leaves the reunion. 
Describe like after it. she describe it. She is in tears. Yeah. Yeah. Like it it's it's <clears throat> it was really sad to watch. And so that Murdoch, that's the moment when they say, "Fuck it, let's go to Beaumont and see Jerry Lee Lewis." Wow. And this gets completely it, left out of the story. So it gives a little bit more to what I think you're going to have more understanding after what happens next to understand why Janice does what she does. Wait, there's more to tell. So what's happening after that? They find out Jerry's playing near them in Beaumont and she's like, I want to take my mind off of all this and go see this bass player again. She and Laura go to the show and they are able to get backstage after the show to get around Jerry's band. Now, the John Byrne Cook, who really, I think, feels this affinity for Janice because he was in her employ and you know probably has this affection for her, um, tells NPR in his interview that Jerry Lee, quote, was definitely not welcoming. He made a remark about Janice's sister, and then she flew off the handle. Now, if you read oh. other versions of this, you get a little more color. And this is the color you get. The color is supposedly that Jerry Lee Lewis told Laura, quote, you wouldn't be bad looking if you weren't trying to look like your sister. Gosh, man. Okay, so remember this other article, this other independent article from Australia, uh, Laura it says that she was dressed like Janice, but just more mm, yeah. pulled back. Okay? Yeah, yeah. So Janice's reaction to Jerry Lee Lewis saying this is to punch him in the face. Oh my gosh. She punched Jerry Lee Lewis in the face. What happened next? Uh, Jerry Lee Lewis punched her back and said, if you're going to act like a man, I'm going to treat you like one. Wow. Holy shit. Wow. <laughs> oh my gosh. I've never heard this before. It's so messed up. <laughs> and I like, when you hear the story without the context of the emotional trauma that had just happened to Janis Joplin, I don't, I, it's just a couple of rock and roll misfits being assholes to each other. When you hear it the way I just told it, whether or not there's embellishment there, or I'm, I'm pulling at too many threads and wrapping them together or whatever. I mean, my heart goes out to Janice. And yeah, also, I, stuff was real. It happened. Yeah. I mean, and, and we know that Jerry Lee Lewis does not prove himself to not be an asshole for the next how many years is that 50 years that he stays alive after this incident 70 people would, people would argue yeah until he died last week i mean i've i read some things that he was even last week not being nice to people <laughs> so but he, he he recorded someone recorded a very long video with him like 48 hours before he passed away in his house and he did look like a hospice patient and he was thanking everyone for everything and thanking everyone for listening to his music and coming to his concerts. And I mean, he he definitely didn't age well. I, I mean, as we obviously like, it's amazing that he's alive, right? We've said that several times. It's amazing right. that he lived as long as he did um, given how he lived. And then in the later years, he really was a bit of a shell. There's this, video that I remember like I hadn't thought about Jerry Lee Lewis in a while and then a couple years ago there was this guy who was trying to make it in Nashville 
and apparently he didn't because I don't remember his name, but he had he was trying to like trick the algorithm and he'd come up he'd gotten this video of him playing piano in the style of Jerry Lee Lewis. That's sort of his his gig. And he did it in front of Jerry Lee Lewis. And this video went viral where he was like he might have been in one of I don't know if he's at Jerry's house or what it was. It was some sort of thing. And um and I just remember watching that video and being like, that guy's a decent p- piano player, but holy crap, look at Jerry Lee Lewis. <laughs> like the poor yeah. guy. I mean, I, I hate for anybody to, regardless of the way they live their life, to sort of look as, as you know, ripped up as he did. Yeah. But, you know, when I mentioned that that, that live record is the first punk rock record ever, like, I'm not, that's how I, that's kind of how I see it. And I don't know the, the, the timeline if jerry lee lit his piano on fire before hendrix lit his guitar on fire at monterey pop because there's this story it's a very famous story and i'm pretty sure it's true that jerry lee and and uh chuck berry were out on tour and they didn't get along this is a long time ago i've seen that i saw i saw them in the 2000s together um, so they started touring together and were normal, but they had a rivalry. And one night when Jerry Lee had to open, he just set the piano on fire. And it's like, well, that's the most insane thing. I mean, I mean, I've never broken a guitar. I've thrown one, but I can't imagine lighting it on fire, much less lighting a, a, a whole piano on fire. Yeah. So, well, so, I mean, since we are on rock and roll bedtime stories, I will tell you there is an article in the show notes um, that explores this rumor. As we talk about the rumor and innuendo, there, there, a lot, a lot of people have doubted this, right? Because everybody who was there um, is dead, and <laughs> there's a lot of people who now say we don't necessarily think it happened. We don't know that he actually, he definitely ripped pianos to shreds, but. We don't really think he he lit one on fire. So GQ in 2014 did an article and poked around at this. And they found his daughter, Phoebe, who at the time had heard her dad say that he did and didn't burn one down. Like both, both, he said both of those things. And this is again, like this show in general has this problem, but Jerry Lee Lewis especially has this problem because he's an inconsistent narrator. (laughs) Like you can't just because he said something happened. We don't necessarily know that that he did. So GQ finds JK Brown who used to play bass for Jerry Lee Lewis. um, And they call him and JK Brown says, no, he never set a piano on fire. Mm, Wow. So they, the, the sus, what they say that this legend came out of the fact that they used to, it, I mean, very crude pyrotechnic flair. Um, when he would close with great balls of fire, they would do this thing that made it look like there was like fire on stage. I don't oh, know. they had cheap pyro. Yeah. That's funny. And then Chuck Berry comes out and doesn't even tune his guitar, which is more crazy. <laughs> blowing, blowing, burning, not do, doing, having crappy pyro. Well, or not tuning your guitar. And, and and speaking of, since we're sitting on the year 1968, I mean, it is interesting because we're talking about a guy who and we we ran into this with Loretta, right? When we were talking about like she put out that 
uh, coal miner's daughter book in the mid seventies and then lived for like another 50 years almost. Um, but he is like in the late sixties is having this career resurrection. Like he's like that long ago, 50 some odd years ago, he had to have a revival to his career because his career had hit such doldrums. And then he continued to have a career and have this notoriety and get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and all that stuff way after that, right? So it's really interesting. But as part of that revival, do, do you know this story about him playing at the LA Forum with the Doors? Nah, nah, let's hear it. Yeah, so the Doors get to do the Forum uh, in 1968, and they have this idea that they're going to get a 50s rocker to open for them. So they call... Johnny Cash, and they can't get uh, they can't get Johnny to do it. Well, I think they could get Johnny to do it, but the promoters don't like it because at the time Johnny Cash is in a bit of a of a down cycle in his career, and he's you know it's sort of being uh, publicized and made a big deal that he had been arrested and all this stuff, right? So they're like, well, fine, if we can't get if we can't get Johnny Cash, we're going for Jerry Lee Lewis. So in December of 1968, the first time they ever play the forum, uh, they get to to say, "Here's what we're going to do." So they start with Ray Manzarek um, having a Chinese musician play some weird instrument that nobody understands what it is to open the show, and then yeah. after that, they bring Jerry Lee Lewis out. And here's a quote. Half the kids didn't know who Jerry Lee was. He was in his country phrase at the time, and we said, Jerry, you've got to do some of your old rock songs. He had this country album out, and the cover showed him with his head buried in his hands, and the title was, She Still Comes Around, parentheses, to love what's left of me. Oh my God. And, and we said, you've got to play a whole lot of shaking going on in Great Balls of Fire. The two songs you were alluding to at the beginning, right? Yeah. The audience was just shouting, Jim, Jim, doors! But... Jerry Lee was great. At the end of his set, he slammed the top of his piano shut, climbed on top, and said, okay, for those of you who love me, God bless you. For those who don't, and then he stuck his tongue out and spit at the crowd and walked off like blue raspberry. Oh, my gosh. Hey, there's, I totally forgot, and I think you and I talked about this a while ago. There is a YouTube clip of him, him and, and the audience yelling at each other at a show and people are like yelling and he's like, I'll play whatever goddamn hell I want to play when I want to play it. God damn it. Like he just yet like he's drunk and he's just, uh, it's so, it's so mean sounding, yeah. especially yeah. as a person with a microphone in front of an audience. At, yeah. a, at a certain point, you create this reputation for yourself, right? And I wonder if he ever felt like I don't think he, I don't think he was like, he doesn't seem to have been. I'm trying to be careful about how I say this. A feeling enough person to necessarily worry about how he was being portrayed or how he was being perceived. Like that doesn't seem, you know, you hear the term sociopath and different things associated with him. So I don't know that he ever felt trapped by his persona. Like, I, I do think that he probably very much was just being him. If you want to get involved in the show, or if you have questions or stories or things about Jerry Lee Lewis you want to air, uh, feel free to send us an email. Uh, it's we are the story guys at gmail.com. Um, and you can, you know, 
leave us a leave us a nice comment or review if you don't mind uh, wherever you download the show from. And wh- how can people find you on Twitter, Murdoch? Um, hey, it's Murdoch. And uh, until next time, what should people keep doing? I just want to say what made Milwaukee famous made a fool out of me, and we miss you, Jerry Lee. Everybody, keep telling stories. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.